0: La Rui Productions presents The Great Unlearning, a courageous memoir about one woman's bold journey to mend her broken past, read for you by me, the author, Mary La. In the last episode, I read the story titled The Unloved Daughter which was about when I realized that my mother's unloving actions created a dysfunctional lens that I looked at the world through and what I did to start shifting that lens. In today's episode, I will read the next two stories in the book. The first is titled Belonging and then Fitting In. Here is Belonging. As a kid, I never truly felt like I belonged anywhere, and felt treated differently, though I wasn't completely sure why. In elementary school, when my siblings and I were issued round wooden tokens to give to the lunch lady for our noontime meal, we had to stand in a separate line along the scuffed wall of the cafeteria with the poor kids in that large, echoey room smelling of sour milk cartons and canned spaghetti sauce. No matter what was on the menu, we didn't get the same hot food as the other kids, and our cold lunches came in a small brown box that always seemed greasy, despite the packaged food inside. I never felt I belonged with the poor kids. It seemed like a mistake, Although we also wore second-hand clothes, my skin color was different than theirs, and most of those kids didn't speak English, so I didn't know how to speak to them. Trying not to radiate my embarrassment, with my eyes firmly planted on my shoes, I'd hide behind my long, stringy, blonde hair as the line slowly moved along. For reasons unknown to me, I went straight from 1st grade to a class mixed with 3rd and 4th graders. Although I easily kept up with the older kids in reading, writing, and math, I felt out of place as a younger kid in an older blended classroom. In addition, nobody wanted to be my friend, which was probably because I ruled the playground during group calisthenics when I could jump higher and run faster than anyone else. On the days with no sack lunch from home, I'd skip eating because I didn't want to be perceived as or feel different standing in the poor kid's line. I would go out on the playground and play tetherball alone, often with a ferocity that made the boys take notice. During recesses, When a few brave kids stepped into my little painted circle on the asphalt, I got good at unabashedly wrapping that ball fast and tight up on that pole, out of reach to any opponent who tried to take me on. Undefeated, I was teased by the boys for being strong, while the girls called me a tomboy. Having scored highest in the fifth grade for the Presidential Physical Fitness Award, I cherished that red, white, and blue and gold embroidered patch I proudly earned and the certificate signed by President Nixon. But this achievement only fueled more teasing from the kids at school who weren't fit enough to participate, and the kids who couldn't even do one pull-up called me a freak. I had thought I would be liked if I was a good athlete, but nope, at least not in the fifth grade. In the sixth grade, the teacher would choose a secretary each week to sit at a desk next to his facing the classroom. This lucky girl would proudly collect and hand out papers, erase the chalkboard, and tidy up the classroom. When he asked me to be his secretary, I couldn't believe it and actually felt chosen. But my fleeting sense of worthiness only lasted until the mean girls in the class let everyone know I didn't deserve it. Pinching their noses and teasing me about deodorant and showering, you'd think I would get the hint I had poor personal hygiene. But I didn't. I stunk. Plus. I beat them all in tetherball, and I didn't like that one bit. I declined the offer to be the class secretary that week, not wanting any more attention, but I got it anyway. I would fantasize about blending in at the long lunch table by the window in the cafeteria, longing to sit with those giggly girls with pretty hair, clean clothes, and black and white saddle shoes the girls who often brought their lunches from home in cheerfully printed white paper lunch bags brimming with bologna sandwiches on Wonder Bread, little bags of potato chips, and Twinkies. Although I looked like them because I didn't have the same clothing and mannerisms as they did, they bullied me into believing I wasn't worthy of their prissy company. When they pointed their fingers at me while laughing at my gangly features and how I dressed, I felt I would never be as good as them or anyone like them, and it didn't seem worth trying. I was a poor kid who didn't understand what that really meant. All I knew was how it felt. What I was learning was that being different meant I was an unlovable freak. I was a freak. As a younger kid in older classes, I played tetherball like a freak, and I could do sit-ups freakishly fast. Having been told that enough times, I came to believe it. In middle school, encouraged by my father to check out a community track and field club, I got a pair of big, clunky athletic shoes and started running cross-country. I enjoyed running around town, which became a way to get places and blow off steam. But this, too, wasn't perceived as a normal thing to do where I lived, and people let me know as much. My father had been a pole vaulter in college, and when I showed promise in jumping events, he bought a high jump pit and put it in our backyard. After mastering the Fosberry flop and beating most kids by a couple of inches, I went on to try every track and field event. One season, unable to decide on just one or two, my event became the decathlon. With special rigid white track shoes that had different size cleats screwed into the soles for each event, I finally felt like I belonged. I started winning ribbons, traveling all over Southern California for track meets, and even ran with Mary Decker once, who went on to become a world record holder in the mile. She inspired me to run even harder. I also tried out for the drill team and got in. We marched in local parades with the middle school band and wore little red sailor mini-dresses with big white collars. I was good at choreographing precision group dance routines while we waved flags and tipped our sailor hats at the spectators. Proud to be part of the team, I felt like I was contributing to something good. But my enthusiasm in drill team and running came to a screeching halt when my mother left our family. When she abandoned me, I abandoned any semblance of worthiness. I quit running, discovered cigarettes, and was soon busted in the school bathroom for smoking, resulting in being kicked off the drill team the morning of a big school performance that I had choreographed two dances for. I sat in the audience, humiliated. After this, my interest took a turn toward a type of survival I wasn't fit for, and I became lost without a touchstone to help me feel safe. Here is fitting in. I sliced into my wrists with a razor-sharp edge of a broken Coke bottle while sitting cross-legged in my driveway careful not to sit on the oil stains where my mother used to park her car. It was a sunny Thursday afternoon in April of 1974 when I broke that bottle on the warm cement in front of my bare feet. The pain of slowly cutting into my wrists was more intoxicating than alarming. As little crimson pearls oozed out of my fresh cuts, I felt disappointed blood didn't spurt out onto the ground. But just as the blood began dripping down my arms, my older brother walked out our front door. Quickly sucking the blood from my wrists, I crossed my arms so he wouldn't see the fresh wounds. When he sat down next to me and asked what I was doing, distractedly rummaging through his backpack, I lied and said I was waiting for someone to come over. I wasn't actually intending to die that day, although my silent screams for attention could have gone terribly wrong. My desire was only to kill myself just enough to impress a gang of ninth-grade kids at school. This collection of delinquents would sit in a circle in the garage of a vacant house in my neighborhood on Copper Avenue and had included a boy who committed suicide because his mother shaved his head as punishment for stealing candy from the shop-and-go, a convenience store a few blocks from my house where my father once worked. The 14-year-old boy had effectively cut his wrists with his father's straight-edge razor, and the gang revered him as some kind of hero for taking such bold action of defiance. The girls in this gang were known as the Tough Chicks. I frequently crossed paths with one of them after school, who often smoked a cigarette while waiting for her ride in the parking lot. Strikingly confident and daring in the way she carried herself, I would have given anything to be like her. Walking past her one afternoon, she gave me a quick glance of acknowledgement with a serious lift of her chin. I felt seen by her. This was soon followed by an urgency to be accepted by her group. Willing to harm myself to accomplish this goal, my intention was to make a statement in order to appear worthy and to prove my bravery. I bought the Coke from the stop-and-go and drank it while walking home. The day after cutting my wrists, I positioned myself so the tough chick from the parking lot could see me with the loads of white gauze I had wrapped around my wrists to get her attention. When she asked me what happened, I lied with an outward confidence I didn't feel, and the bandages bought me an opportunity to be introduced to the gang later that afternoon. As a rite of passage into this group, After being handed a brand-new number two pencil, I was instructed to erase all layers of skin on the top of my left hand in a one-inch strip until it bled. Although my hand felt like I was lighting it on fire, my determination to fit in didn't allow me to stop midway and be perceived as a coward. When two drops of blood landed on my left shoe, I was told I had one more initiation to ride out. One of the tough chicks stood behind me with her arms wrapped uncomfortably tight around my waist, then told me to hyperventilate before squeezing me as hard as she could. My upper body flailed forward as directed and I passed out for a long minute before waking up on the floor. Accepted. I was then given the task of stealing cigarettes from my parents as a fee for the next gathering. The Copper Gang soon became my source of self-esteem, and I felt comfort being included in this group of misfits, although I couldn't identify with their anger and gutsy brazenness. Over the next few weeks, we played Spin the Bottle, other kissing games, and seven minutes in heaven in a musty utility closet in the vacant garage. When I was paired up in the closet with a pimply boy with mushy McDonald's French fries stuck in his braces, an almost intolerable body odor, I shrieked as his ice cold fingers found their way up my shirt. Everyone on the other side of the closet door laughed out loud, but I loved the attention which I wasn't getting anywhere else. With reluctance, I agreed to take a large grocery store bag full of marijuana home with me for two weeks to keep it safe. I felt elated the gang found me dependable with their stash, though I never smoked the stuff and wasn't interested in doing so. On the day I was supposed to bring it back to the circle, after retrieving it, From under a pile of laundry in my closet, I opened my bedroom window, pried off a corner of the screen, then dropped the bag into the backyard. Nervously taking my first step toward calmly walking through the house before running around back to get the bag, a deep masculine voice yelled, BUSTED! And I yelped a newly learned cuss word as I was certain the police were in my backyard. Anxiously peeking out the window and seeing it was one of my brothers intercepting the bag as it hit the ground, I quickly offered him a handful of the marijuana if he'd promise not to tell. But looking in the bag, he declined, seeing mostly twigs which were not worth smoking as he knew about these things. Feeling like I had just finished an important job, I brought the bag of Twiggy Weed back to the circle. In exchange, I was given a small plastic baggie of crushed white pills one of the gang members took for his attention deficit disorder and was instructed to stand on the corner by Safeway to wait for a high school boy in a black truck who would pay $5 for the bag. The transaction went off without a hitch. I had no clue if it had contained any risk and no part of me ever felt like I was in danger. I proudly handed over the $5 bill and felt exuberant for pleasing the gang. The next week, when the gang discussed plans to bully a special needs kid in the neighborhood, I found the courage to disagree with their intent and was instantly not one of them anymore. After calling me a wimp, They kicked me out of the gang, and I was quickly replaced by a gullible middle schooler desperate to fit in. The story I told myself was that I was rejected for speaking up for what I believed in. So why bother speaking up at all? Brene Brown says... When we present our authentic, imperfect selves to the world, we will find where we belong. True belonging doesn't require you to change who you are. It requires you to be who you are. I feel like my authentic self was emerging in the story belonging, and I found groups I belonged in, like the track and field community and drill team, But my mother's action to abandon our family made me feel like I wasn't worthy and I had a shift in my mindset. When I made the decisions I did to fit in to the Copper Gang, I was molding myself into a group I didn't belong in. Belonging is a basic human need and it's fundamental to our sense of happiness and well-being. But I didn't learn that lesson until I was well in adulthood. Much more about that in a future podcast. If you would like to see the self-portraits I created to accompany the stories I read today, you will find them on my blog at mary-law.com. Or better yet, while you are on my website, Buy a copy of The Great Unlearning. There are over 50 surreal self-portraits and stories in there. Visit mary-la.com. If you purchase a book via my website, I will send you an autographed copy while they last, or you can just buy it on Amazon. Now it's time to address a listener's question. Jen, a listener from Nevada, asks, I'm 55 years old and still blame my dysfunctional mother for all the wrong things that happened in my life. How did you unlearn this? Good question, Jen. I recently had a lively chat about blame with Emily Holgan, a mental health counselor who also happens to be my daughter and significant contributor to the emotional topics in this book. She's a smart cookie and wise beyond her 30 years. You will meet Emily in a later podcast. So, Emily says that blaming people can work very well in the short term and agreed that it can be very disempowering in the long run. In the short term, blaming can provide... Temporary emotional relief and lighten the load of what happened for a while. It's actually a defense mechanism. Blaming can also become a default reaction to life and can be a way to avoid and deny what you are really feeling. So how to unlearn this healthy pattern? Emily says, when we recognize we are operating from a place of blame, we must ask ourselves first, what feeling am I having that is hard to fully feel? And how can I take some responsibility for the blame? When I was blaming my mother for all my problems, I learned the feelings I was avoiding were unresolved resentment and bitterness around why she did what she did. didn't do. Here is an answer to your question, Jen. The thing in adulthood is we have to recognize our responsibility in how blame continues to impact and control our lives as an adult. By continuing to blame my mother, I was keeping my toxic resentment alive. I felt an instant aha when I learned this and realized I needed to resolve my resentment to move past it and develop compassion. I did so by writing this book, and you will see how that unfolded as you keep listening. If you have a question or a comment about a story or my art, please email me at mary at mary-la.com. There is a good chance I'll mention your comment or address your question in a future podcast. And I have a free gift for you. By signing up for my engaging newsletter with inspiring new content, information on upcoming events and future projects, you will receive the audio version of my book of poetry, Fear Means Go, read by me. I also play classical guitar on this recording, as I did for today's podcast. In the next episode, follow me to the beginning of my high school years where I will share two stories, On Guard and Learning to Pretend, where you will hear all about how a beautiful day at the beach turned into a disastrous mindset that induced a deep sense of shame that fueled an anxiety and panic disorder that would nearly flatten me. This is Mary Law. Thanks for listening.